now with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Well, good afternoon, everybody, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, finding the courage to reclaim that which has always, always been in you. Very excited to be with you here today, every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, and every other time in between. And so just want to wish everybody an early, happy Halloween weekend as we go into it. Here we are on Friday. And I am Dr. James Houck. And if you would like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, I invite you to visit the website. It's uh, www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity that's all one word so www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity and if uh, you would like to be part of the show and would like to call in that number is 888-627-6008 that's 888 888- Six two seven six zero zero eight, and uh, I'll be taking the calls uh, in the second half of the show if you'd like to call in. And uh, now these uh, broadcasts are podcasted in case you want to go back and listen again to this particular uh, show, or if you want to go back into the archives and listen to previous shows, you just go onto the website and they can direct you from there. And also these uh, shows that they said are podcasted and they are now available for download on audible iTunes iTunes and Amazon Music. So that's another way in which you can follow the show. So, and I appreciate everybody who has been following me and, and uh, listening, and uh, I really, really appreciate it. Well, whenever we uh, consider what reclaiming authenticity is all about, you know, we have to place it in a larger context. Okay, because you never know, um, or I should say, it doesn't matter who you are or where you were born or into what family you were placed. Ours is a world filled with relationships, and indeed, we are social beings who we often spend our lives trying to make sense out of our world by trying to find our place in the world. And because we are social beings, uh, we think that it would be easy to make friends and get along with family members and so forth, and we wouldn't have any problems and so forth and so forth, but it's often within the context of these relationships that we experience a tremendous amount of pain and suffering um, from, you know, people we know and even people we don't know from overt acts of betrayal and cruelty that somebody has inflicted against us, or let's be honest, we may have inflicted that betrayal or cruelty on to another to also simply being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, as a result, many of us bear the scars of the physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual woundedness. And as I'm going to be talking about in this particular show, it's it's just basically about finding one's voice in the depth of silence 
and how to share our stories, not from a place of woundedness or disappointment, but let's share our stories from a place of healing or wholeness or peace. Because just as we experience uh, our woundedness in these relationships, it's also within the context of healthy and healthier relationships that we can find our healing. And we can certainly reclaim our voice and we can reclaim our authenticity. And so the difficulty then, or I should say the process towards healing, is often finding that courage to discover those things which have always been in us. Uh, you know, I'm constantly sharing with others that, you know, when they say, well, okay, what exactly is reclaiming authenticity all about? And I said, well, look at it this way. I'm a firm believer that we come into the world, each and every one of us, already gifted, already graced, already, you know, with the skills and the talents. And yes, we can develop skills, more talents and skills and so forth. But we already come in, you know, just really equipped with everything that we need in this world. And so, um, you know, these uh, these gifts, these graces, the skills, and another way to look at it is the uniqueness uh, or this hachetas or the thisness, as John Dunn Scotus is often, uh, was often fond of describing it as. So we do come into the world with everything that we need for ourselves and for others. Okay, because whenever we look at our skills or whenever we look at our talents or the things that we are, you know, not just good at, but just who we are in general, you know, just a, a pure sense of who we are. Um, when we discover these things, it's not for us to keep all these things to ourselves. They're meant to be shared. They're meant to affirm and uplift and heal and reach out and bless and whatever language you want to use. They're meant for somebody else because, you know, think about the people in your life who've reached out to you and who encouraged you and who wouldn't let you settle for anything less than who you fully are. And, you know, it's uh, sometimes we go through various experiences and we would convince ourselves uh, that we don't have anything to offer anybody else. We don't really have any kind of giftedness or what's so special about us or something like that. Or maybe we we felt as though we just couldn't live up to another person's expectations, you know, or maybe we hid that that uniqueness, you know, of ourselves from others in order to survive an abusive relationship or, um, you know, maybe those aspects of ourselves have been taken away from us and we didn't have the strength to hang on to those things or to fight for them. Well, either way, when we become aware that we have done these things, it does take tremendous courage to reclaim who we fully are. That we can also reclaim our voice, our uniqueness, our thisness. Okay, and whenever we, uh, whenever this occurs, you know, we, we soon discover that we begin to tell our stories of transformation from a different place in us. Uh, you know, we will always remember the, the historical context of what we have been through. That's not going to change. But our perceptions of it, and when we tell our stories from that different place in us, that those transformative places, you know, it, we, we find that we tell our stories from a stronger sense of, you know, we've been healed, from a stronger sense of our wholeness, and from a stronger sense of, of gratitude and love and concern. 
Well, as I said, I will be taking your calls in the second half of the show today, and, and I encourage you to call in if you're listening, because I would like to get your, your perspective on today's subject, the tranquility of the soul, which is the tranquility for the world. Okay, the tranquility of the soul is the tranquility for the world. And certainly the world needs a lot more tranquility than what it has in the past. And ironically, the tranquility of the soul is discovered. I'm, again, a firm believer of this. It's discovered in silence. You know, not just in the absence of sound, but rather in the peace, the stillness, and the utter tranquility that emerges even when all around us is chaos and noise. Well, I'm sure at one point or another you've heard the expression, silence is golden. You know, and um, yeah, maybe you've even said it this week. But uh, have you ever stopped to consider exactly what does that mean? Now, you know, we could just start off with a textbook definition, uh, you know, of what we think silence of golden is. But um, it's, it's pretty much this, you know, keeping one's mouth shut is a great virtue, but, you know, uh, don't tell anybody about it because silence is golden. And although this precise phrase was recorded, I think it was back in like the mid, uh, uh, like around 1848, 1849, which is part of a much older proverb, which goes something like this. Speech is silver, but silence is gold. You know, and what makes uh, what makes silence so more precious than speech? Okay, because, you know, we go through school and everything. We have to learn a language. And, you know, if you're fortunate enough to learn two languages, because uh, that's how you were raised, or you learned a third language in school or whatever it is, you know, speech is very important because that's probably the main way that many of us communicate. But what is it about silence that makes it gold, that is that much more precious? And, and how do we do that on a daily basis, especially if our jobs are, are talking about, you know, or sharing or communicating in some manner or some fashion? So silence is golden. And at first thought, it appears that this is very good advice, but it's not a universal truth because it's not always advantageous to be silent, especially when you think about it here, that when one has been forced into silence or told not to tell anybody or even threatened to keep quiet. And this is one of the aspects victims are often told by their abusers or their oppressors, that if they talk, there's going to be consequences. And as a result, many people are made to believe that there is no alternative, that they don't have a choice. But all there is is just to suffer in silence and just try to bear up under their psychological or emotional, or physical or spiritual pain all by themselves. But how many people suffer in silence? Okay, this is not just a cultural expression, you know, but, but rather many people who suffer from even mental health illnesses or trauma in silence because they don't really know how to put into words the depth of their pain and their suffering and their relentless misery. Like, where do you start? You know, what, what, you know, to say, well, you know, start wherever you feel comfortable, but okay, but what if I'm not comfortable? 
how do you put into words a pain that goes be, way beyond words? Well, my encounters or my understanding of silence has expanded over the years. That silence has taught me much about myself, and uh, it has definitely taught me a lot when I first started to research intergenerational trauma. And uh, this is something that I, you know, have been doing for many years now. And uh, it seems like uh, every situation or every historical account that occurs, you know, eventually with intergenerational trauma is unique in and of itself. You know, no two follow a, a specific pattern, maybe, you know, a very in general ways. But. But you have to look at each, you know, incident of intergenerational trauma as, you know, as it needs to stand alone. Well, if you were with me here last week, you recall that um, I talked a lot about something referred to as total pain, which captures more of a multifactual pain and suffering that people experience. Okay, it's not just emotional pain. It's not just psychological pain. And the one who really brought, shall we say, the world into the awareness of what, just what exactly is total pain was Dame Cicely Saunders. And she was the one who championed the hospice movement and uh, ultimately brought us into this present-day understanding of palliative care or pain management. And she defined the concept of total pain as the suffering that includes all of a person's physical, psychological, social, spiritual, even daily practical struggles. And like I said, this was groundbreaking when she was able to articulate it in such a way uh, that, you know, how do you care for somebody who is dying from a debilitating disease? And this is the part of the hospice that really picked up on this and, and focused more not on cure, but rather on care. And so it's how do you share this story? How do you sit with somebody in their pain? And it's not just the physical pain that they're in, but what are the other issues that they're dealing with? What are their other worries or concerns or depression and, and everything else? But, you know, there's a, another dimension of humanity's pain that is much, much deeper than total pain. See, it's a pain that's so deep, so intense, that as I said, not even words can touch it. Because in the Korean language, there's a word called Han, H-A-N, Han. And this word, in and of itself, um, even though we try to define it, there's really no one particular word that can really capture it all. But Again, this word communicates more of a, you know, the feelings of sorrow or oppression or unavenged injustice and isolation that's really hard to explain. And in our American language, there really isn't uh, an equivalent word for it. But, but Han also expresses a continuous and relentless anguish of an entire people, especially the powerless and the vulnerable in society. And down through history, you know, centuries upon centuries upon centuries, and this is certainly the case with intergenerational trauma, that when another group of people comes in or another power comes in, you often see the attempts to erase 
everything about another group of people. You know, they want to erase language. They want to erase culture. They want to erase an identity. They just want to replace it, you know, and, and just get rid of the past and so forth. And we saw this clearly with, um, you know, Native American boarding schools and that whole concept of just, we don't care, you know, who you are. It's now we are in charge and we're going to do it this way. And so, you know, just again, it wasn't just related to the Native Americans, but with any group of people that that really suffers this. So it's it's really this relentless sorrow, this relentless oppression, this relentless unavenged injustices and isolation that just continues, not just down from one generation to another, but it is just part of a culture that they cannot tell their story apart from this pain that is so deep and so intense. Well, another way to um, express Han is this concept of an unfathomable wound. Okay. You know, it's kind of a, a rupture of the soul that is caused by abuse or some sort of exploitation or injustice and violence. And when an aching soul is wounded again and again and again by some sort of external violence, you know, the, the people, the victims suffer just deeper and deeper and deeper ache. And then just the aches continue. And the wound produced by such repeated abuse and injustice has really found itself in the depths of the soul. Because... I mean, we're going to try to deny this any way we want to, but when it, the you know the truth is at the end of the day that our society tends to victimize victims. You know that's why many people don't want to come forward and and testify, or they don't want to do this because they're going to be victimized all over again. They're going to their their character is going to be you know under scrutiny and, and you know character assassination and all that, and it's just like well you know. We can't really trust the word of, you know, that kind of person, you know, and it's just all the shaming that is just over and over and over again. And you take somebody who's been emotionally beaten down or even physically beaten down, and it's like we just can't assume that they want to put themselves up against that again because it just might be too much. And so, you know, it's not just our society, but other societies throughout the world tend to victimize victims, you know, and, and you know, the lengths that people will go to to cover up the truth. And I've also had uh, heard it said that uh, Han has this, uh, you know, other feeling of, you know, this unresolved resentment against the injustices that have been suffered, you know, this, you know, it's not an agitation or an irritation. It's, it's this rage. It's, you know, not even an anger. That's not going to touch the word, but it's this, this like volcanic kind of rage because of a sense of helplessness, because of the overwhelming odds that one or a group of people had to face. And it's this feeling of acute pain, you know, deep in the one's bowels that, you know, make the whole body just kind of writhe in pain and squirm and just cannot tolerate it. And it also linked with this is this obstinate urge to take revenge and to right the wrong. 
you know, and, and it's all of these combined. We just can't tease out one particular aspect and say this is Han, because it's it's just something that you know is just very hard to describe. So we have to keep talking about it in either shades or facets of of you know the pain and and sorrow that uh, people express. Okay, and ironically, you know. The, Korean definition of Han didn't exist until the Japanese occupation of the Korean Peninsula. And, um, you know, this word became popular to describe the shared suffering of the Korean people when they were under oppression and occupation. And, you know, it's, again, I've heard Han described as, well, it's, it's, it isn't something you can define. It's something that you feel. Okay. And so, um, you know, as a result, many people often live their lives in this quiet solitude of, of hopelessness and despair because they have never been given the permission to express their pain and grief. But we can find comfort in, you know, even if we find ourselves in that state, you know, in that when we are in a state of this suffering, shall we say, that, that takes us to the point of having no words for it. We do have the cry of the soul, which is heard above everything else. Because there's a passage in, in the Bible that reminds us that no matter what level of dimension our pain is, we're never beyond the reach of God's grace and healing and everlasting love. And it's this passage that's found in Romans. You know, it's, Paul writes in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we ought to to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Okay? So even though we don't have words to express, you know, gut-wrenching pain and sorrow and relentless oppression and so forth, there is a cry, there is a groaning deep within our soul that does not go unnoticed. It is certainly heard above all else. And there will come a day when we're going to be able to put into words our pain and, and be able to make sense of it. We will find our voice, you know, and, and we will give permission to others to find their voice. Because that's one thing I, I also really appreciate is when people share their stories, they are, in a sense, giving people permission to share their stories. But, you know, down through the centuries, societies have displayed a pattern of wanting to silence people and just keep them in their pain. Um, you know, but we have seen, especially in the 21st century and, and, you know, even today, people are being silent no more. One of my uh, favorite quotes is from Dorothy Soli. And... Um, you know, she had a lot to say about, you know, silence and oppression and just what exactly does that do to a person. But her one quote has always stayed with me because of the hope that it communicates. And it's this, suffering that cannot be expressed is suffering that cannot be healed. Suffering that cannot be expressed is suffering that cannot be healed. See, people are being empowered to share their stories and to share their pain, and they want to share their voices to be an advocate for others who have yet to find their voice. 
And in one particular area that, of course, you know, I work, you know, being in the mental health field and so forth, is depression. And I think I read just last week that depression affects nearly, I think, 16 million Americans every year. And, you know, but but still, you know, as it is with, you know, a lot of in mental health, there's this stigma attached to, you know, mental illness that is very real. And it causes many people to suffer in silence. And this is, you know, especially true for men. You know, you know, they say, well, you know, women are going to be women. And I just like, you know, just stop. You know, you, you know, that that kind of logic is just it, it's over with. It's done. But men also, you know, suffer in silence because of the stigma that's put on them that they, you know, you know, you don't need to act this way. You just kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just, you know, have a stiff upper lip and just keep going. But it does take courage to openly talk to others about your suffering because, you know, sometimes people might see you as vulnerable. And generally, it takes a lot of motivation and tolerance to really pull through, you know, a period of suffering or hardship. And, and, um, and, and I don't think suffering in silence is sustainable. If anything, it just makes things much, much worse. It just kind of feeds this despair and this hopelessness that many people fight to get out of. So the voice is very empowering, and this is what Dorothy Solee, you know, is 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 saying here in this quote that suffering that cannot be expressed is suffering that cannot be healed. And when people are able to name their suffering, to talk about it, to share their suffering, it is very, very empowering. There's there's a strength that a person finds within themselves. And it's a strength that others who are listening to another person's story that they find very empowering to themselves and how they can relate to each other's stories. And hopefully, you know, it's not, you know, relating. Well, let me put it this way. It's yeah, you can relate to a person's pain and you may have gone through something very similar yourself, but to really latch on to the words that express the hope that is being shared. And, you know, because if a person in their situation and through their story has been able to find something hopeful and it gives them a reason to get up in the morning and get out of bed and to keep pressing on and, and going forward and, you know, not giving up, that certainly is very attractive to others because we all appreciate those stories of hope. We all appreciate those stories of resiliency and, and the promise that, yes, it, things are getting better. Okay. Well, something that both psychologists and psychiatrists are well aware of is that trauma and silence almost always go hand in hand. And it is, it's not easy to talk about, you know, the thing that's, that's hurting us, you know, let alone talking out loud. Uh, we often play that narrative, you know, over in our heads uh, on a daily basis. But the the two very specific reasons why um, it's not easy to talk out loud about the thing that hurts us is, one, we might be afraid of being judged by somebody else or, or ridiculed um, in some way. And the second one is, above everything else, you know, people don't want to show that they're vulnerable. Because at times, even, you know, in the world today, it's the strong personalities that so-called win 
the strong personalities that get notice. You know, the ones that put up with everything and they don't complain and and they are often hailed as, you know, models of optimism and self-confidence. And yet it's it's very devastating to realize that in today's world, suffering is still stigmatized. You know, and and when something is, in, is stigmatized and it's embraced and a person carries that, it's it's very hard then to find that healing and that release and that freedom. Okay, that's how devastating stigma is. But the irony of stigma is that it comes from society itself. And yet society is the one that's complaining that people can't heal and people are taking the drugs in order to cope and all this other stuff. But society doesn't realize its empowerment the ways in which to reach out to others who are hurting and eliminate this stigma that is still out there, whatever it is. You know, it could be some disparaging remark or an attitude that separates people or a way to exclude others and so forth. Society has that power in general, as well as individuals have that power to remove the stigma and start the healing process and welcome people back into society, back into their community or their faith community even, and say, you're not alone, for we are just like you. You are, you are not alone in this world and this pain and suffering. Well, for the most part, um, even though we're in the second year of uh, this pandemic, one thing I've, I continually notice is that people in general do not like silence. You know, people, have, you know, we've gotten used to the noise of, of everyday life, the, the hustle and bustle of traffic or even background noise like we want to keep a radio on or the TV while we work or something like that. You know, something that distracts us from everyday tasks. And yet, how often do we take advantage of silence? How often do we allow ourselves the time to be in silence? I mean, not too many times, I imagine. And and how many times do we interpret silence as a bad thing or something negative, such as, you know, when a, a person's mad at us, we'll probably get the proverbial silent treatment. Or, you know, if we don't hear back from another person, you know, either you know on the phone or a text, we, we all automatically think that something is wrong or they're ignoring us. Well, in the second half of this show, I want to talk about some historical examples of when people who have been made to live or die in silence, that they now have been acknowledged by authority-type figures, or you know, shall I say, now have been given the permission to speak. And yet, when we have to ask these questions, uh, you know, are these times when public apologies are a means of righting the wrongs of the past, or are they just simply a justification of what happened in order to placate those living today into further silence? Well, I really want to hear your heart on this matter. So again, if you want to call in, the number is 888-627-6008, and I will be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, and I'm your host, Dr. Jane Alp. Be back with you in one minute.
Welcome back. I'm Dr. James Hawk, and you're listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Uh, what I was talking about in the first half of the broadcast was how many people suffer in silence. You know, this just goes something, you know, far beyond a cultural expression, you know, but rather how many people, you know, especially suffering from mental health illnesses or trauma, how many people suffer in silence? because they just don't know how to put into words the depth of their pain, or they don't recognize and listen to the cry of their soul. And so they continue to suffer, or they're in this relentless misery. Well, if you're a regular listener to this show, you know that I am a huge advocate for healing intergenerational trauma. And I myself have done this in many ways. I've, I've interviewed people who continue to suffer from the psychological, emotional traumas of the past. I've, I've sat with people. I've counseled them. I've also educated others on exactly how the soul of a people suffers when intergenerational trauma is covered up and or dismissed. You know, it's not just individuals who suffer, but you have communities, you have cities, you have towns, and um, every year, you know, on an anniversary of something, we we replicate or we reinforce that kind of suffering, and it just becomes an, an identity for many, many people, but they do not realize just what that does in, in just latching on to that kind of an identity with no healing. And I've, I've also been involved in clearing historical sites where traumatic energies have kept souls bound for decades, even centuries. And that takes uh, a lot of work in and of itself, but it uh, certainly can be done. So it's, um, you know, I, I just love doing it, you know, or love healing intergenerational trauma in people because I just see the devastating effects of it just when it's, when it's not being healed. And, you know, when you have succeeding generations feeling as though they have gone through what, let's say, the first generation has experienced, and yet they could be grandsons and daughters or great-grandsons and daughters or great-great-great-grandsons and daughters, and they just don't know why does they feel this way or why, you know, um, attitudes of oppression continue to haunt them and so forth. And yet... What I've discovered uh, is yet another aspect of intergenerational trauma that seems to go hand in hand with reinforcing suffering in silence, and that is the public apology. Now, you would think that this wouldn't be the case, because, you know, an apology encourages others to break their silence and end their suffering. Well, within recent decades, and even going back many, many decades, you know, let's go back 100, 200, 300 years, even more, there's been a, a steady stream of public apologies made on behalf of, let's say, the government and ecclesiastical leaders for the inhumane treatment or the sexual abuses and prejudiced behavior and the outright slaughter of people from many cultural backgrounds. And for me, I'm all about the apology. I'm all about forgiveness. I'm all about restoration. But wait, what really makes an apology transformative and healing are three distinct elements. A person needs to say, I'm sorry. This is what I did. The second thing is, please forgive me. 
And the third aspect is, and this is what I'm doing to correct it. So I'm sorry, this is what I did. Please forgive me. And this is what I am doing to correct it. See, and, and this is this third part here, this repentance that involves a change in attitude and behavior that really guarantees that the offense will never, ever happen again. A change in attitude and change behavior should be following apology. Now, the, the public acknowledgement of such behavior comes often as a result of uncovering, uncovering crimes, I should say, against humanity, you know, or investigative reporting or and or the work of truth commissions, just to name a few. And albeit a step in the right direction, okay, you know, some of these public apologies for historical atrocities often include an air of kind of a, a dismissive justification. You know, it's very subtle at times you know, of, uh, well, that's just the way the world was back then, kind of explanation for the mistreatment of people for the greater good of a nation or the world. And in a sense, uh, contemporary leaders often offer an apology for the past without accepting the responsibility for doing anything wrong let alone not acknowledging being part of a socioeconomic or political or educational and or religious systems that still perpetuate offensive schemes. You know, and whether it was the advancement of science or manifest destiny or believed to be a divine right, violence in one form or another has always been justified against a weaker undereducated, under-civilized, and or underdeveloped people. Now, ironically, this, this rationale for force always seems to come from the perspective of, of people who use their military might or political power or religious zeal and or just the outright lust to hang on to their piece of power and control, you know, for as long as possible. In fact, history... Is, is one that often bears witness to this phenomenon from generation to generation to generation. We have this repeated physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual abuses that really incriminate those who have exploited and manipulated their power either for worldwide colonization and or genocide. And this occurs in countries such as America or Canada or the Congo, or Germany, or Russia, Rwanda, Ireland, Australia. In fact, anywhere else where violence and genocide has occurred. Well, on one hand, public apologies do acknowledge the cruel and inhumane acts done to vulnerable populations. Okay? Such apologies do raise a sense of community awareness, and it raises community empathy regarding the, the devastating and the intergenerational traumatic effects of the suffering of others. And as words of empathy are offered, many victims and survivors feel vindicated, and they are grateful for the public voices raised on behalf of those who have yet to find their healing voice. All good. All good. But yet, on the other hand, some public apologies come away, you know, just sounding very superficial. And they're often rejected by contemporary populations whose ancestors have not only been victimized in such horrors, but 
succeeding generations continue to feel that accountability and justice never really served. Okay. Well, as a result, you know, for many, the apologies, explanations, and the offer of some sort of financial compensation just really only adds insult to the intergenerational wounds in people who continue to feel, let's say, the, the sting of a hand slapped across the face. And um, I, you know, I just don't have enough time in today's broadcast, but there are examples after examples after examples that we can just point to, but I'll just share a couple of them with you. And back in 2015, um, uh, the author uh, McGeevers uh, recalls a speech that was made on July 10th, and uh, as I said, 2015, that Pope Francis apologized to Bolivia's indigenous leaders for the church's crimes and sins against native people. And, and this is just a portion of what he said. Like, I would also say, and here I wish to be quite clear, as was St. John Paul II, I humbly ask your forgiveness, not only for the offenses of the church herself, but also for crimes committed against the native peoples during the so-called conquest of America. And Although his apology initially was warmly received, many California Native American Indian populations felt betrayed when Pope Francis, within two months of this apology, canonized Father Unipero Serra in Washington, D.C. Now, if you don't know anything about Father Unipero Serra, I invite you to do your homework. I am not making this up. I am not attacking anybody here, but it, I'm just making a point that when we have some public apologies, we see some inconsistencies, okay? Now, despite the fact that, you know, Father Unipero Serra established nine out of the 21 missions along the California coast back in the 1700s, you know, Father Serra has been widely criticized over his physical mistreatment and suppression of Native peoples. Okay, and moreover, whereas hundreds of thousands of California Native American Indians flourished, within a hundred years of Father Sarah's arrival, the indigenous population had been decimated to 16,000. Okay, and you know, all you have to do is just, like I said, as you do your homework, you, you know, much of this information came from Father Sarah's uh, journal entries himself and, and how his attitude was towards the Native American uh, populations. But he pretty much uh, just uh, pressed into service, shall we say. And perhaps another reason why public apologies often fall short in their effectiveness to bring healing is because of the, this confusing motivation behind the apology. You know, are, are public apologies meant to excuse behavior or is the, or should say the, the public apology meant to dismiss accountability? Are public apologies able to capture the historical perspective that justifies behavior based on what was considered legal at the time? Or do public apologies simply, uh, you know, just point out the ethical and moral injustices? Well, from the benefit of hindsight, and that's what we have to go on here, we might interpret that certain actions were unethical or immoral in their day, but nonetheless, they were permitted 
because people acted according to, you know, the law of the land, shall we say. Uh, or in other words, our public apology is now considered appropriate based on the actions that were considered legal, according to our contemporary laws, or shall we say the laws of those times. And another example of this is uh, back in October of 2014 in uh, Tume, Ireland, the Tume Herald viewpoint headlined this one uh, perspective, I'll put it that way. It says, the harsh facts of life in 1946 put modern controversies in a different perspective. And the author, you know, he cautioned readers that we cannot judge the actions of the past by today's standards, uh, because any assessment of those years has to take into account the grinding poverty and the lack of resources at the time. Okay, and his article was in response to the controversy surrounding the discovery of the 796 infants and children buried in an unmarked mass grave in the septic tanks behind the St. Mary's Mother and Baby Home in Chume, County Galway, Ireland. And I have to tell you, I've stood on those grounds. I walked Chume. I've talked with people. I know exactly where the septic tanks were. I've seen the blueprints. And it, it is just heartbreaking, to say the least. So, in response, I know many people still believe that regardless of the economic times, you know, mother-baby homes like that in Tume and others were not as effective by the poverty nor lacked resources as one would think. In fact, uh, most of the domesticated work such as cooking or tending vegetable gardens and child rearing, etc., were performed by the young mothers who stayed in the home up to a year after giving birth. Well, still... Regardless of whether we judge the past according to the present or vice versa, how do these issues of accountability need to be addressed? Okay, because, you know, if, if public apologies for past atrocities are simply about matters of justice, then why were injustices not addressed at the time in history when they were committed? And we could also ask, why now? After all, you know, many of these atrocities have been committed decades and centuries ago by people who took part in such crimes against humanity. They are now deceased or they are, you know, elderly or infirmed. Well, perhaps the answers lie in the fact that society just might have had a bigger role to play in reinforcing the wishes of a leader or a group. You know, perhaps the systems in place back then had more to gain than what was considered lost. Well, as I said, I stood on the grounds of the, you know, in Chume, and I walked the land where these 796 infants and children were buried. And it was also during a time when, you know, I was in Ireland, uh, I also interviewed survivors of the Magdalene laundries, you know. Um, and these were laundries where... Uh, they were described to me that, um, you know, it was a system that kept the, the mad, the sad, and the bad girls out of sight and in a secret place. Uh, 
and a lot of the women I had interviewed, um, and even daughters of you know whose mothers grew up in these places, they often felt betrayed by families when they were sent to these laundries, and often they they carry the shame of their promiscuous behavior with them. And they were made to wear uniforms and work long hours of heavy physical labor. And if the girls or the women managed to escape, the townsfolk identified them by the uniforms that they had and promptly returned them to one of these Magdalene laundries. And as I was listening to these stories, I couldn't help but, you know, just very softly just raise my hand and just said, excuse me, where were the men when all of this was going on. And interestingly, none of the men were ever punished or shamed like this. In fact, the men are hardly ever mentioned at all. And several women shared with me that sometimes it didn't matter if you had a boyfriend or not. Your shame was the result of emotional or physical and or sexual abuse by your brother or your father or your uncle or a priest. Or a teacher. Yet in our search for the truth and justice, are we content to really single out one person as a scapegoat for the atrocities? Or perhaps are we afraid to admit that such crimes had enough community support and oxygen to be fueled for centuries? I mean, were these atrocities merely a breakdown in the system, or was the system itself faulty to begin with? And furthermore, do we, you know, living in the 21st century, do we have the resolve to hold our contemporary systems accountable for perpetuating crimes against humanity, regardless of the way things have always been done in the past? And this is especially true now, since there's been many unreported sex trafficking crimes and the disappearance of uh, many Native American women and indigenous Canadian women, you know, on, on reservations. But still, a common phrase that drives us is, what do they know and when do they know it? We've heard that many times. And regardless of the historical context in which these horrors occurred, it appears that surrounding communities were also aware of these atrocities and, shall we say, passively gave their consent by their silent indifference or maybe their fear. And clearly, no one person or group ever involved in these crimes against humanity, none of them, ever acted alone. And this was something that the movie Spotlight brought out. It was a movie that came out in 2015, and it it tells the true story of the Boston Globe's uncovering of the child molestation scandal and and cover-up within local Catholic archdiocese. And there's one particular scene where the investigator, uh, Mitchell Garabedian, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, where he acknowledges the real issue behind this scandal. As he says, this city, these people, making the rest of us feel like we don't belong. But they're no better than us. Look how they treat their children. Mark my words, Mr. Resendez. If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one. And when all was said and done, 
249 priests and brothers were publicly accused of sexual abuse within the, the Boston Archdiocese, and over 600 stories were then published about the scandal. And I think I believe it was uh, in December of 2002 where Cardinal Law, he resigned from Boston Archdiocese. And interestingly, he was reassigned to the Basilica di Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome, one of the highest ranking Roman Catholic churches in the world. You see, family, government, religious financial, educational, and socioeconomic systems often form a spider web. Uh, you know, it could be described as a spider web of deceitfulness or a spider web that reinforces or a spider web that is hard to know where one picks up and, and leaves off and so forth. And Again, I interviewed several women who had survived experiences of neglect and abuse and pain at, you know, the mother-children homes and the Magdalene laundries. And again, you know, I, I just had more questions than I had answers. And so after I asked the question, I'm like, okay, where are the men in all this? As I listened to their stories and eyewitness accounts, I couldn't help wondering what effects these experiences have on a person's soul, let alone the soul of the community. I mean, when, when does reconciliation and forgiveness begin for these women? When were they allowed to leave the homes and the laundries? And when they were, were the women welcomed back into their families and communities who knew where they had been? I mean, how do individuals and communities heal from such history now that these institutions no longer exist? Is the horror of the past finally over? Well, we would think so, but I don't know. The more and more as we empower people to find their voice, to share their stories, more and more of these particular historical accounts are coming forward. You know, the then the onus is on the rest of us who live within and work within these various systems to, you know, what needs to be done, what needs to change so that this may never happen again. You see, tremendous courage is needed to heal intergenerational trauma and embrace the truth and transform into the beautiful soul that people are. And whether or not you know much about your ancestral line or whether or not you see yourself coming from a long history of slaves or slave owners or oppressors or murderers or healers or victims or blue-collar workers or white-collar workers, victims of addictions or suicide, divorce or healthy relationships, these all have a physical, emotional, psychological and, and spiritual component to discovering the truth. Yes, the truth does set us free, but it's a freedom that comes with a tremendous amount of responsibility, a responsibility to continue the soul healing process in the lives of those who have come before us, and certainly in the lives of those who have yet to be born. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity, 
thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. I certainly appreciate it and invite you to visit the website and drop me your comments. And um, if there's any particular theme or uh, subject that you would like me to talk about, please let me know that as well. So um, until next time, uh, next Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, until next time, everybody be safe out there. Everybody behave yourself. And we will talk next Friday. Take care. Bye-bye. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to ReclaimingAuthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific Time on PBS Radio TV.